All right, I want to pick up where we left off in the book of Revelation. We left off in chapter 3. I know a couple of you haven't been here when we started this book, but just keep in real brief background. This is a book that was written by the Apostle John. He was on the island of Patmos. That Jesus Christ appeared to him, and then we're given this physical description of what he looks like. I'm going to go over that real quick, but he addresses the seven churches of Asia. All right, and these seven churches are very, very characteristics of the church all throughout church history. We have them today as far as their moral characteristics are concerned. But here's what's interesting. Five out of the seven churches were in need of repentance. Five out of seven churches. Now, I don't think that that's a stretch if you carry it to say that five out of seven church members today could very well be in need of repentance. And I'm not trying to be anybody's judge. I just say, hey, look at this. I mean, and this was the first century. I mean, and here we are 20 centuries removed from that as far as a situation where I think this is very prevalent today as far as these characteristics of the churches that he rebukes five of them. I mean, the church of Ephesus, we read about them. He rebuked them because they lost their first love, even though they were doing a lot of good things. He had nothing unfavorable to say to the church of Smyrna because that was a persecuted church. And over 60% of the body of Christ is suffering persecution because of their faith in Christ. And it's becoming more and more predominant in terms of the Muslim world. They are really, really coming down on Christians, especially in Indonesia and the Middle East and all over the place. I mean, over there in Egypt, just two weeks ago, they just killed a bunch of Christians and who were just doing what? What was their crime? They were in the church worshiping God. You know, and they just go in there and kill these people. Like, they're just totally worthless. And they're doing this in the name of God. I mean, that was really a sad thing. But that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Because we're told in Revelation chapter 6, that man, persecution is really going to take off during the tribulation period. And more people are going to die for their faith in Christ then than all of church history combined. Then Jesus rebuked the church of Pergamum because basically they held to the teaching of Balaam, which basically did this two-step. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They put things before God. In other words, Jesus Christ said, you can't serve two masters, man. Uh, you're going to love one and hate the other, cleave the one and spice the other. You can't serve God and money. And Balaam was a man who served money and tried to serve God at the same time. And he ended up dying the death of the wicked. And also uh, because they held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Remember, the Nicolaitans were a Gnostic group who basically taught, hey, man, your body is corrupt. doesn't matter what you do in your body. You can just send up a storm. And it's not going to affect your soul because Jesus Christ redeems your soul and your spirit and your body is not redeemed, so you can do whatever you want in it. And then, of course, we read about the church of Tyre Thyra, where Jesus Christ really rebuked this church because they tolerated a lot of uh, false teaching in the church by this woman he referred to as Jezebel. In other words, she inculcated in the, the church uh, teaching that was occultic in nature. I mean, I don't care. I don't. She may have been uh, teaching uh, astrology. Uh, horoscope. She could have been teaching, uh, well, witchcraft, sorcery, or any other thing, but probably something along the lines of astrology or Eastern mysticism was crept into the church. Jesus really rebuked him. Now we're going to pick up on this chapter 3, but just keep in mind, when Jesus appeared to John on Patmos, John describes him in physical terms, and I, I just go over this real briefly as far as this physical terms, because in each consecutive church, a physical characteristic is described to this particular church, and I think it's very, very significant. I mean, it just wasn't done by happenstance. It's, it's for a purpose. I mean, and when John saw the resurrected Christ, he said his face just shone like the sun in its strength. I mean, nobody can stand in the presence of God. Nobody. 
okay, who's not redeemed under the blood of Christ? I mean, if we couldn't stand under the sun, what will a person do in the presence of God? I mean, that's what it boils down to. And then you, he had eyes of flame of fire, meaning his eyes can just penetrate right through us, see right through our bodies, look right into our soul and gaze into our heart and know our thoughts and our motives and our deeds and, and everything that we've done. I mean, he could see clearly. And also he had hair that was white as wool, denoting his great age as well as his tremendous wisdom and insight. And he's going to judge man intelligently. And also he had this golden girdle that was around his waist, or excuse me, around his breast area, around his chest, signifying that that gold is divine in nature, or it points to divinity. In other words, he's divinely constrained in terms of his emotions. Even though he's a man, he's going to go forth and tread the world in judgment, but he's not going to be moved with passion or pity. People are going to die by the hundreds of thousands, by the hundreds of millions, by the billions. And he's not going to be moved by their tears and their suffering and their sorrow because he's coming to judge the world for its unrepentant sins. All right? This is something that's been totally lost, totally lost, even within the church today, that God is a holy God, and we need to repent of our sins. Sure, he's merciful, he's long-suffering, he's forgiving, he's patient. He longs for men to turn to him like a prodigal son, get out of the pig pen, come home to him. All right? But if we're going to continue to wallow in his pig pen, then he's just going to judge us. He's going to judge the world. And he also holds the seven stars in his hands. These seven stars pointed to who? No, the angels, which were the pastors of the overseers. In other words, he had a total control of the leadership of his church, all right? Also had a white robe going from his neck all the way down to his feet, denoting his righteousness, his purity, his holiness, but also that he cannot be fully known as God. And also he had feet of burnished bronze. In other words, bronze always points to uh, to judgment, and they're burnished bronze or polished bronze, meaning that all of God's judgments are weighed out, they're measured, they're not uneven. All right, uh, God just does not fly off in a rage. All right, He treads this world methodically, systematically, because of its sins and because of its sinners, because of its sinfulness. And also, He has a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of His mouth, of course, pointing to His word. Now, I just briefly gave you that background, especially for anybody who hasn't been here, because we're going to pick up this chapter three now, and we're going to deal with this church of Sardis. And I think it's very powerful, and this church is very, very much in existence today. It says in verse one of chapter three of Revelation. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour that I will come. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, this message to Sardis is very, very powerful because there's a lot of churches like this. As a matter of fact, I think the denomination that I belong to fit this category pretty well for many, many years, and now it's uh, really reaped the whirlwind. But here's the thing I think is very significant about this church, all right? He says to the angel, to the pastor, to the overseer, to the church of Sardis, right, he who has the seven spirits of God. 
seven spirits of God. Remember, go back to Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verses 1 and 2. There's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength, and the spirit of fear of the Lord. You know, these all rested on Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll open up to you every single day I ask that God would impart to me His Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of strength, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of fear of the Lord, because this is something we need to be renewing every single day. I think that some people make a mistake. They think, well, once you accept Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You never have to pray for this again. No, I think it's an ongoing thing that we need to constantly do everything we can to be filled with the Spirit, because that's what Paul says. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit by the constant renewing of our mind. This is something we need to do every day. Well, if he's saying he has the seven spirits of God, in other words, he knows it all, and he's addressing this church. All right, and what is he saying about this church? I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That categorizes a lot of churches today. It really does. I mean, you can go to a church, and it can have a real big building program going on. It can have a lot of people to it. It can have a lot of different things. I'll give you an example, and I'm not trying to be anybody's judge here, but I am a small group leader, Bible study leader for this big mega church all right, in our area. I mean, uh, they boasted they had something like 30,000 people went to it over the Christmas uh, services. That's a lot of people, right? Well, over the years, I've had probably about a dozen people from that church come to a Bible study that I teach on Thursday night. Now, I'm not trying to be anybody's judge. We had a couple ladies that had come, and, uh, you know, they came for quite some time, very regularly, but then because of their jobs, commitments, they were no longer able to come. But it's been my experience that this happens, is that they have over 200 small group leaders in that church, and they all have different ministries, okay? But here's the impression I get. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to pass judgment on anybody. Here's the impression I get. The people that come to my group, they're not really looking for a spiritual connection where they can say, where can I find a place where I can really grow in the love and knowledge and fear of God, where I can really grow in my faith, that I can really get closer to God? What do you think they come for? There it is. It's primary. Now, I get this impression. I'm not trying to pass judgment, but I get this impression. They're looking for a social connection, and they will come to a Bible study or maybe even another person's Bible study, for that matter, and they're going to evaluate it on a basis of, well, there's not enough singles here. There's not enough good-looking women here. There's not enough divorced people here. There's not enough married people here. There's not enough people with children here. I mean, just go down the line. Now, if you come for any of those reasons then to me, you're looking for a social connection. And a church can have all kinds of different programs going. But the most important is spiritual, because Jesus Christ is saying here, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but that you are dead. Now, you know, Jesus Christ, remember when somebody came to him and said, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Jesus said, well, you know, let the dead bury the dead. And he wasn't talking about a corpse burying another corpse. He's talking about let the spiritually dead people of this world take care of the dead things of this world, right? And Paul says that in uh, Timothy that a woman who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even though she lives. So a person can be spiritually dead and very much involved in a church, all right? That's the message here because he says, know your deeds that you have a name, that you are alive, that you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Now, that's very, very powerful because the Bible says an awful lot about waking up. I mean, the implication here, if he's saying wake up, it means you're asleep, all right? 
Now, here's what people don't understand. You go back to Proverbs. Twice in the book of Proverbs, it says, a little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will break in on you like an armed robber. All right? Just a little more slumber, a little more sleep, a little more folding of the hands to rest, and apply it spiritually, and your spiritual poverty will break in on you. In other words, we really have to be diligent. In other words, if we get to a situation where little by little, because of laziness and slothfulness, all right, and indolence, that we just let things go in terms of we're not spending the quality time we need to spend with God in prayer and Bible reading, Bible study, and fellowship and working for the Lord. Hey, little incremental steps at a time. This doesn't happen all at once. A person can be very much on fire for God, and the next day they're not going to be ice cold. But little incremental steps at a time where we just continue to be slothful. This is what can happen to us. And then next thing you know, we're asleep. We're asleep and we don't even know it. When a person is asleep, they don't know they're asleep. Right? Right. But the Bible says, awake, O sleeper, Mm -hmm. and Christ will rise upon you. So in other words, we really have to be woken up. All right? Right. And there's a lot of people in the church today that are just asleep. All right? And here's the thing. Here's what's really significant about that. You go back to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew where Christ talks about the ten virgins. You know, it says five were wise and five were foolish. But what did all ten of them have in common? Well, they had lamps. They had lamps. They had lamps? Good. The five had the oil. Yeah. They all had oil, didn't they? No. no. Five had five oil, had oil which is an emblem of the Holy Spirit. All right, but also what's very interesting to me, it says they all fell asleep, all of them. Now, here's my take on that, all right? The five wise ones, they were asleep in this respect. I have said for many, many years I've said this, and I could be wrong. I'm not setting any dates, but I believe strongly, based upon the prophecies of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets and current events and everything that's happening in our world today, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is going to return in my lifetime or my lifespan. Now, granted, I could walk out of here and get run over by a bus. That's going to be the end of me. But I'm saying, as far as the lifespan, that God said that 70 years will be given men because of strength, some will live to be 80. And Jesus gave basically the parable of the fig tree, which basically was referring to Israel, that the people who saw this nation back as a nation, uh, all these things would be fulfilled. This generation would not pass away. And my point is this. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is going to return in my lifetime. But I bet you anything, I'll bet you a thousand dollars that he is not going to return in the next five minutes. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Jesus Christ said this, I'm coming in a day and an hour when you least expect it. I expect him in my lifespan, but I do not expect him in the next five minutes. Therefore, I'm asleep. Even though I may be a wise virgin, I'm asleep. See? This is the thing. But what's the big difference is that my lamp has oil in it. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm living a righteous life. That's the big difference here, okay, between the person that needs to be woken up because they're in a deadly coma in terms of their spiritual condition before God, and another person who's just unaware that Jesus Christ is coming back in the next two seconds. Yeah. Amen. And we need to persevere and be vigil and go for it and ask God. I'm yours every day, every second of your life. That sounds almost overwhelming, but no, you got to do it. Yeah. Well, what does it say here? Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Now, what are you going to do to strengthen them? 
Okay, Paul tells Timothy, man, he says, bodily discipline is very good. He says, but, uh, you know, it's only for the moment. It's only temporary, man. What we really need to focus in on is spiritual discipline. The discipline to get up, spend time with God, mm-hmm. quality time, prime time, every single day, and read his word and really seek him as far as his will for our life. Okay, to trust in him with all of our strength and things that remain. That requires discipline. Believe me, it really does. That's strength and the things that remain, which we're about to die, which are about to die. All right, they're just going to flat out die. There's nothing here that I can see that's good that says, hey, it doesn't matter. Just believe in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you do, what you believe, how you act. You're going to go to heaven. I don't see that here. He says, I have not found your deeds complete inside of my God. He says, I, I have not found your deeds complete. Now, I've seen this over the years too, all right? And like I said, I'm not trying to be anybody's judge, but I've seen people get enthusiastic about the things of God and then they'll get involved in some kind of program or they'll start some kind of program. In other words, they'll get involved with uh, doing things for the mission or they'll get involved with doing things at soup kitchens. They'll get involved with doing... And then, you know, when a novelty wears off, then they're gone, all right? This is boring. I'm on my way. Now, I'll be honest with you, I started teaching the Bible about 38 years ago. I don't even remember when I started, but I knew th- I know this. I made up my mind, well, you know what, if I'm going to start this, I'm going to have to see it through. And if nobody shows up for a Bible study, I'm going to sit here and read it myself, because I really need this, all right? Now, I've been teaching it decade after decade in thousands of different Bible studies, and I don't say that to pat myself on the back, but I do feel like this. I do feel like God said, I want you to teach. So I have to see this thing through, all right? And uh, believe me, if I went by feelings, I would have quit a long time ago. Sometimes he says, I haven't found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. You know, someone once said, it's far better to say this thing I do well rather than these 50 things I dabble with. I mean, you know, if we start something for God, he's going to ask us, well, you're going to finish this or not? Simply because it gets tough, it gets difficult, because there's a sacrifice involved, because the, the newness is worn off, all right, and now you're going to quit? Well, this is the way the people were, right? I don't care what it is they got involved with. Maybe a youth ministry, maybe a mission field, maybe this, that, and the other thing, but he, he doesn't like that. Now, here's another interesting thing. He says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, here's a sentence where the Jehovah Witnesses will take off and say, well, look, uh, Jesus Christ, he's not God because he refers to his God right here. Remember when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the first person he appeared to was Mary Magdalene. And when she saw him, she said, Rabboni, she fell at his feet and clinged to his feet. He says, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended to my God and your God, to my father and your father to my God and your God. Jesus Christ referred to him as his God. All right, and then, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses will come off and say, well, see, during his lifetime, he prayed to his father. Therefore, he couldn't have been God. Well, see, that to me is very, very shallow in your thinking, okay, and in your logic. Because here's the thing. When Jesus Christ took on our humanity, okay, as a man, now as a man, he needed to pray. That's why he was always in prayer. It doesn't mean that he wasn't equal with his father. Now, I'm going to throw this question out. I want to see who's thinking because I want you to think hard, think deep. Does Jesus Christ, in his resurrected state right now, pray? Does Jesus Christ, in his resurrected state, in heaven, right now, pray? Does he? Huh? I'm inclined to say yes. Okay, why? Because he is is our great... 
priest. Good, very good. And you'll hit it right on, dead on, Christian, really dead on. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, it says this, For every high priest is taken among men, is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant, misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he says also in another passage, he says, You are a priest forever according to the, the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on to say in chapter 7 of Hebrews, he says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever so much the more also jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant the former priests on the one hand exited in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing but jesus on the other hand because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently therefore he's able also to save forever those who draw near to god through him since he has always lives to make intercession for us He's in heaven right now praying on our behalf because that's what intercession means. It means pleading on behalf of another, a prayer to God on behalf of another, a petition on behalf of another. That's what intercession means. So believe it or not, Jesus Christ is in heaven praying, all right, because as a man, he took on the role as a high priest. As a high priest, he's an intercessor. Yeah. So uh, that kind of begs the question of how about after the new heaven and earth comes about, does he still have that role? Well, put it this way, when we get to the the last two chapters of this book, it says that there's no longer any temple. So what would that suggest to you? Yeah, that there's not going to be any more need for the priesthood in that regard because God is married to his people, married to his church. You see what I'm saying? So there's no longer any temple, so there would be no longer any need for priests. All right, but there's a temple in heaven. All right, we are told that specifically, and John tells us in this book of Revelation. And Moses was given basically the instructions to build the tabernacle from a pattern that was in heaven. Also Solomon, or basically David, was given the instructions for this temple because it's a temple in heaven. But during the, uh, the eternal state, not the millennial state, but during the eternal state, all right, there'll be no more temple. All right, so the suggestion there is now they're not going to be any more priests. That was a good question. Anyway, you look at what he's saying here. Look at verse 3. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Now, I've gone through the concordance and I've, you know, counted a number of times it says remember or in in remembrance or remember God or things of God. And uh, it's almost 300 times. Because we have such a wretched capacity when it comes to remembering things, especially spiritual things. So I really have to uh, make a concerted effort when it says here, remember what you have received. To do that, what you've received, you received the word of God. You received the, the doctrine in terms of uh, uh, salvation. You received these things, but you can lose them by a slumber, right? So we have to be diligent and get back to what we once learned. That's what he's saying here, all right? Uh, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. We have to get it back. We've lost it today. And uh, like I said, I'm not being anybody's judge, but you look around us today, it's exactly what Paul predicted, that there would be apostasy in the last day. And apostasy is a falling away from the truth. It's a falling away from sound doctrine. Why? Because people have fallen asleep, man, and they've gone out for teachers who are going to tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear, and they have forsaken sound doctrine. Jesus said, hey, we better repent of that and get back to what you heard at first and then keep it. 
that, that really takes a lot of effort on our part, especially today. He says, therefore, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. In other words, he's going to either take your life, or he's going to take away his church, and you're going to be left out in the cold, period. You're going to be totally lost for all eternity, or you're just going to miss out when Christ bears his church. He says in that verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That's what's interesting to me about this, is that Jesus Christ, he doesn't really have any commendations for this church. He doesn't have any praise for this church, but he does say that there are a few people there who have not done what? They haven't soiled their garments. In other words, they're living a righteous life before God. But what's interesting to me is this. He does not say to them, well, you few people who are remaining faithful to me, you better get out of that church. And you better go over there to Smyrna, or you better go over there to Philadelphia and join that church instead. What does he say? He says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he who overcomes, or in other words, hey, he's telling him, hey, bloom where you're planted, overcome where you're planted, and then what? You're going to walk with me in white. Now, what does it mean to walk? What does that suggest to us if we're going to walk with Christ? What does it suggest? Daily, daily, minute by minute. Okay, if you're walking with someone, it shows a real act of fellowship. It shows a bond there. In other words, you're in step with one another. You're fellowshipping with one another. You're both going at the same pace, at the same direction. You know what I'm saying? And there's a connection there. In other words, we're going to walk with Christ for all eternity. We're going to have this union, this fellowship, okay, this friendship, this bond. Why? Because what? It says they walk with me in white for they are worthy. All right? Why? Because they haven't soiled their garments. What makes them worthy is that they put on Christ's righteousness, but now they don't soil that garment by sin. All right? They're walking in righteousness. And Paul said this. He says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness on the day that Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for him. But also, he said, there's a crown for everyone that does what? That loves his appearing. In other words, if Jesus Christ were to come back right this split second, I think I would love his appearing because I would love to be doing this when he returns. Wouldn't you? I mean, I wouldn't want to be out there getting rip-roaring drunk or or cheating on my spouse or doing any number of things, all right? I don't care what people say, all right? You can claim to believe in Christ from now till hell freezes over, but if you're out there robbing a bank when he returns, I guarantee you, you're not going to love his appearing. You're just flat out not, right? You're not. And he says, uh, for they are worthy. Verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. In other words, to overcome, I mentioned this last week, we don't overcome a hearty breakfast or a good night's sleep. We have to overcome an obstacle, something that's very painful, very difficult, very hard to deal with. That's what we're into today in terms of our spiritual walk. It's a conflict, it's a battle, and it's a challenge, and we really have to exert ourselves to overcome. Thus they will be clothed in white garments. In other words, they're clothed in his white garments. Remember the parable that Jesus Christ gave in regards to the king who gave this big, huge banquet? He sent out a delegation of all of his uh, slaves to all these different people with this big, huge invitation to come to the wedding feast of my son. And one person after another after another made up one lame excuse after another after another. And some of his servants that went out there to try to get people to this wedding feast, they they were harassed and they were persecuted. They were killed. And then Jesus flat out asked, what do you think this king is going to do to these people who have done this? And they said, well, they're going to bring all these wretches to a a bitter end. And then he said, 
when they had the wedding feast because he went out there in the highways and the byways and the hedgerows and brought in the cripples and the lame and the outcasts. Okay, they brought him in so his, his house could be full. But then he goes into this wedding feast, this king, and he sees somebody without a wedding garment on, on and he goes up to him and says, Hey, friend, how is it that you got in here without a wedding garment? What did the guy say? You know what? It said he was speechless. Was suggesting what? No excuse. In other words, that wedding garment is what? It's Christ's righteousness. Now, here's a guy who thought he could get to heaven by, quote, unquote, being good. Being good. All right. And he said, he said, bound this guy hand and foot and throw him out there with the hypocrites. who are just going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anyone who does not have this wedding garment on is not going to make it in the kingdom of God. And that wedding garment is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we've got a whole church full and a whole country full and a whole world full of people who think, I'm basically good. If there's a heaven, I'll get there. I got news for you. You're going to be thrown out on your ear. If you do not have that righteousness of yeah, Christ put on. There's a uh, book I read recently, and, and you can take it for what it's worth, believe it or not believe it, but I don't think people have a really a, an understanding about the reality of hell and the lake of fire. It's called 23 Minutes in Hell. I read that right? book. Very good book. And, you know, I, it's, it's a, I think a transformational book as the word is. You know, yeah. people, I think that ought to be required reading in every household. Yeah, um, it is a very, very powerful book. You know, I would recommend it to anyone to read it. It's very easy reading. It's not that long of a book. Anyway, uh, it really, really, I think, hits home the, the, the message that people, that they're going to end up in this place, this lake of fire, where Jesus Christ said, man, the worm doesn't die, the fire is not quenched. It's not a place of unconsciousness for all eternity. Boy, you're going to be very conscious there. And also it says this, he who overcomes, I thus clothed with white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now, this is very powerful to me. Because if Jesus Christ says, I will not erase your name from the book of life, what's the obvious inference? It was there. That you can have it erased. I don't care. You know, I, I know I'm really in the minority here. There's a lot of my brothers and sisters who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. Yeah. If you want to believe in that doctrine, fine. I'm not going to argue that from now to crack a doom, all right? But I am saying this, all right? If you believe that doctrine, you better be living it. You better be living for Jesus Christ. You better be living in righteousness. Don't let that doctrine fool you into thinking it doesn't matter what I do and what I believe and how I act because uh, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. And I accepted Christ when I'm 12. And even though I'm living like the devil right now, I'm still saved. No, you know, no. people have to understand. You know what? You're going to get your name erased from that book of life. Jesus said it right here. I will not erase your name from the book of life. As a matter of fact, go all the way back to Exodus when all the people got not all the people, where all these people got out of control. Aaron made this golden calf. Okay, and then Moses is up on the mountain of Mount Sinai. He comes back down and he sees people out of control. He's he's so livid. He's so angry. So mad. Throws the Ten Commandments down on the ground. Busts them all up. Grounds that calf into powder and has people drink it. The dust from that calf. Tell, told people, get down there and drink that slop. I mean, he was just absolutely livid. But then he goes back up on Mount Sinai and he says to God, look, man, if you're not going to forgive these people, just blot my name out of the book of life. And what did God say to Moses? Anybody remember? He says, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life, but I am going to blot everybody who sinned against me. I'm going to blot their name out of the book of life. So that to blot them out means that they were once there. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 69, remember in Psalm 69, there's a prophecy about him. 
about his crucifixion all the way through it. And then in the middle of that, that Psalm 69, it says, and blot their name out of the book of life, these people who did this to him. In other words, the religious leaders who did this to him. So all I'm saying is this. You want to believe once saved, always saved, go ahead. But I'm saying this. You better be living for Christ. You better be living a righteous life because otherwise you're kidding yourself. Now I would say this. If I'm wrong, I have misled no one. No one. All right? I've misled no one because I'm saying you need to live a righteous life. That's not misleading anybody, all right? And anyway, he says this in verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, what's the condition for him to confess our name before his father and before his angels besides living a righteous life? Yeah, Jesus said, man, if you are ashamed of me before men in this adulterous generation, I'm going to be ashamed of you before my fathers and his angels, all right? We have to go out and proclaim Christ, all right? A lot of people say, well, my religion is a personal thing, and I don't have to tell anybody about it. Well, that's all good and well. However, if you really cut through all the smoke screen and the clap and all the rhetoric, there's a good chance that the reason you don't proclaim Christ is because you're ashamed of him. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of being that, but we have to examine our own hearts and say, is that the real reason why I don't share? Christ, because if it is, he's not going to confess us before his father and his angels. In that verse 6, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I said this before, eight times in this book of Revelation, Jesus Christ says, he who has an ear, let him hear. All right? And uh, Jesus Christ said the same thing in the Gospels, he who has an ear, let him hear. And I think I shared this before, every day I just touch my ears and say, Lord, open my ears, man. Let me be in tune to your voice that I can distinguish your voice above all other voices. All right? With a heart that's determined to listen to what he has to say and obey what he has to say because there's so many things out there to divert our attention. All right? And I've said this multitudes of times over the years. We are not designed, we're not programmed to listen to more than one conversation at a time. And if you don't believe me, I challenge you to do it. I just challenge it. I've tried it many, many times. You cannot do it. All right? We have to be tuned to God and tune out everything else. Yeah, what are you going to say? Put our attention on the Lord. Think of myself, you are Jesus and your righteousness every single day, lest I slip. Yeah. And take that for granted. So praise God. You know, brothers, go for the Lord every day. Yeah. And renew that righteousness. Yeah. And yeah. Bless out of your socks. It's back right back. I think it's verse one. It says Jesus tells the church of Sardis to now wake up. Now that's what put you to sleep. Those watching football, being involved in sports, your car, chasing around, all these other things that buy for your attention. Right. You fall asleep spiritually in the Lord. Yeah. You're very wide awake in the things of the devil. You're exactly right there, just dead on, all right? There's nothing wrong with watching TV, but I guarantee you, people, if they consume with watching TV or being on a computer or just reading secular novels, mysteries, all this stuff, and they don't have time for God, they're going to be lulled to sleep. Okay, I want to get into this Church of Philadelphia now, because this Church of Philadelphia, Jesus Christ doesn't have one word of rebuke. And, uh, you know, this church, Church of Philadelphia, Philadelphia means what? Brotherly love, okay, this was a church that is noted for its love, but this church is very, very significant because it's even in existence today. 
It says, and to the angel, to the pastor, the overseer, the church of Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come down and bow at your feet, and I will make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him a name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this church of Philadelphia, this is a very unique church because even though it was a very uh, struggling church, they didn't have hardly any resources. Uh, they didn't have a name that they were a well-to-do church. They probably didn't have the huge congregation. I mean, from all outward appearances, men would look at this and say, well, this is a pretty insignificant church. Jesus Christ is looking at this church, and he, there's something about this church that really delights him, and he is going to do something for this church that he's not going to do for a lot of these other churches if they don't repent because he says this in that verse 7 to the angel in the church of Philadelphia write he who is holy and is who is true the suggestion here is you know what what I have to say to you you could take it to the bank why because I'm holy in other words I can't lie to you I will not lie to you because I'm holy and righteous so what I'm saying to you you could take it to the bank and I know there are a lot of people today inside the church outside the church who would disagree who would disbelieve what Christ is going to say to this church but Christ is saying right up front hey man you could take this to the bank this is true I can't lie to you because I'm holy and I will not lie to you the one who is holy who is true who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens says this I know your deeds behold I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name now here's the thing he said he has the key of David which to me is very very powerful because anybody know what the key of David is huh I, you know what I just finished up uh, going through the book of Isaiah last month uh, in this class that I teach on Thursday night and anyway we went through the book of Isaiah there's an interesting thing there that during the reign of Hezekiah right, he was king of uh, Judah he had a worthless, good-for-nothing overseer of the house of his treasury named Sibna, and he was just a self-centered man. Everything he did was for himself. He was out for himself. I mean, he's like he would almost epitomize a lot of politicians today. But God said, I'm going to do away with this man. He said, basically, I'm going to roll him up like a ball. I'm going to throw him into a far country, meaning this guy is going to go into captivity, all right, under the Assyrians. But then... What God said about this guy Elikim in Isaiah chapter 22, he said this, verse 19, I will dispose you, that's Shebna, from your office, and I will pull down you from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Elikim, the son of Hilika, and I will clothe him with a tunic and tie your sash securely about him, and I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. In other words, this guy has the key to the treasury of the house of David during the days of Hezekiah, the king, meaning this. 
that if he decides, when people would come to him and they'd say, well, we need funds for this or we need funds for that, we need resources for this, he was the final word. It was almost like Joseph way back in there in Egypt. All right, He would approve any kind of monies going forth from the treasury uh, for any particular program whatsoever. He could approve or disapprove it. When he would open a door, no man could shut it. When he shut a door, nobody could open it. And so what Christ is saying there, I have the keys of David. Okay, I have the keys to the house of David. Look at that verse. Right. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door with no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. But the verse right before this, he says he has a key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one is open. In other words, these people have little power. They have little authority. They have little influence, little prestige. But God's saying this. Listen, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the fact that you're poor and you have so few resources because you know what? I got the key of David to the treasury. In other words, I have all of heaven's riches at your disposal and I'm going to make them available to you because I've put before you an open door for evangelizing, for witnessing. Why? Because you've kept the word of my perseverance. That's interesting to me. Look at that verse uh, 8. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. But then you go down on verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Now, what does it mean by the word of my perseverance? Standing fast, fast, and persevering. In his word. All right, this is what's happening to a lot of people in the church today is they are not persevering in his word. But if you go back up here in verse 8, latter part of it, he says, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, last week we went through the church of Pogramma. We talked about that. But what's interesting about that, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. In other words, he praised his church of Pogramum because they held fast his name, but then they didn't persevere in his word in regards to some of the teachings that were brought into the church, all right, in regards to Paul. My point is this. There are a number of churches, and I can even uh, say that, uh, in generally speaking, even my own church has fallen into this trap where they don't deny Jesus' name or they hold fast his name in this respect. There's a lot of people say, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ uh, is our Savior. Yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. But then they don't persevere in his word. In other words, then they'll take his word and they'll say, well, I don't believe in Jonah. That's just a fish story. Well, I don't believe in Adam and Eve. That was just made up for simpletons of long ago. Well, I don't believe the six days of creation because of this, that, and the other. Now, you're not holding fast to his word. You're not persevering in his word. All right, that's a very dangerous position to get into. Why? You're denying Jesus because Jesus is the word. No, well, when you deny what God has said in his word in regards to Jonah or regards to creation or regards to Adam and Eve, guess what? It's just a real short step from there to start denying his moral laws and what he has said in terms of our salvation. All right, and what's required, you see, because that's what is needed to persevere in his word here. All right, and uh, he says here in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, interesting thing. You know, when we went through chapter 2, we talked about 
in that verse uh, 9 of chapter 2, we talked about the church of Samaria. He said this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews or not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And over here, he's saying that these people of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come down and bow down at your feet and make them know that I loved you. Now, he's saying this, they're the synagogue of Satan. What is a synagogue? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a house of God, a house of prayer, a house of worship, a house of religious instruction, an assembly of worship. Uh, There's a lot of Jews then, back there in the synagogue, they told anyone who believed in Jesus Christ, you could no longer come into our synagogue. And Jesus Christ referred to that as the synagogue of Satan. Now, he's saying this, they claim to be Jews, but they're not real Jews. Now, what's the criteria for being a real Jew? Anybody remember? Well, Paul says in Romans, Romans chapter 2, he said this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, a true Jew is a person who commits to the ultimate Jew. All right? And this is no way, shape, or form anti-Semitic because I'm telling you right now, I worship a Jew. All right? But there are true Jews and there are false Jews. There are the false Jews who claim to believe in God, but they reject Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, then all your religious instruction and teaching and worship is in the synagogue of, of Satan. Now, I'm not making that up. That's what he says here very clearly. Right? But he's saying this. These people who claim to be long to God, I'm going to make them come down and do what? He says this. I will make them come down and bow at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. In other words, hey man, that you have committed to me, the ultimate Jew, and these people are going to know it someday because they're going to come down and bow down at your feet and admit that they were wrong, all right, of their rejection of him, of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now here's the thing. Next week when we get into chapter 4, I'm really going to try to deal with the, the whole rapture, okay, of the church. Now you will not find the word rapture in the Bible anymore more than you'll find the word Trinity. But I'm telling you right now, it is very, very sound doctrine. And I'll get into that next week in terms of uh, what's all going to be involved there. But there's a lot of people, matter of fact, there's an article here written by one of the ministers in my own particular denomination, how he just scoffed at this whole idea of the rapture. Well, there's a lot of people that scoff at that. First of all, a lot of people don't even know about it, okay? And then when they hear about it, they say, well, that just sounds like a fairy tale, rather than investigating what it's all about. But here's one of the most powerful uh, scriptures you can find on this issue. I used to listen to Walter Martin. He was a real apologetic when it came to the Bible, and uh, he was referred to as a Bible answer man, and he... You know, would really deal with cults and the occult and all false religions and this type of thing. He's a very, very brilliant man. But he used to say that uh, he didn't believe in a rapture, that uh, he believed that people were going to go through the tribulation period. And I never could understand that, never could understand that at all, all right, because it didn't make any sense to me. And this is one of the verses that clearly says otherwise, because it says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, it makes it abundantly clear that this is going to be a testing, a tribulation period, a chastisement that's going to come upon the whole world, not just a local event, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, not just the Middle East, but the whole world. I'm going to keep you from it. He didn't say, I'm going to keep you in it. I'm going to see you through it. He said, I'm going to keep you from it. 
All right? Remember in Matthew and in Luke where Jesus Christ talked about two men will be in a field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be in a grinding mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Remember when, uh, I was just mentioning about the, in uh, Matthew 25 about the ten wise virgins and the ten foolish virgins. And what happened to the ten foolish virgins? Uh, it says here, and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour the Lord is coming. All right? In other words, hey, these people were shut out, but what were they shut out from? In other words, people don't understand this. I think a lot of people have a misconception. The church is a very, very, very select group. All right? People might have this misconception that everybody in heaven is in the church. No, the church started a day of Pentecost, and it's going to end when Christ calls up his church. All right, that's the church. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ talked to John the Baptist, he says there's no man born a woman who is greater than John the Baptist. But I'm telling you right now, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you've got to ask, well, what is he talking about here? John the Baptist is not part of the church. He died before Pentecost. He was like the best man. All right? He opened a door for people you know, to come to Christ. He opened a door for the church, but he wasn't part of the church. That church is a very select group because here it talks about the bridegroom coming for his church and then the others were left out. Now, the ones who were left behind, they were left out. They could still be saved, but they're going to go through this great tribulation period. right? And I'll get into this more next week because that, that, that's a whole you know, study in itself. All right, as far as the scripture verses, but here it says, I'm going to keep you from this hour of testing. It's come upon the whole world. I'm going to keep you from it. All right, then he says here in verse 11, I am coming quickly, hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, he doesn't have any rebuke for this church, but he does have an admonition. What's the admonition? Hold fast. Hold fast. How are we going to do that? I'm being distracted by the world. Yeah, I mean, man, you got, you got to recognize, man, i got to hang on to this thing. This thing is valuable, all right? Hold fast to it. In other words, just apply it to just being in the world that we're living in and going through, let's just say you're going through this carnival, and it's, the carnival is noted for all kinds of pickpockets and thieves and thugs and robbers, and you got a lot of money in this wallet. Uh, what are you going to do with this wallet? Put it in a safe spot. I mean, you could have put it on you where you are aware of it at all times. You're always basically holding fast to it. You realize that it's there because this is valuable. If I'm not diligent here, I could lose this thing, right? And believe me, he's saying hold fast that no one can take your crown, all right? This is what's going to happen to us. We have to be really diligent in this area. Otherwise, we can lose it, all right? In verse 12, he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That's interesting. Is that to overcome, that he uses that word again. In other words, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a conflict. It's going to be a difficulty. It's going to be an obstacle. It's going to be a struggle to overcome. But he says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, which is interesting because he's saying this. They had little resources. They had little power. They had little going for them. They were very weak in the eyes of men. But he said, hey, I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God. Now, what's the characteristic of a pillar? It's a very strong support, isn't it? To uphold. It's strong. It's a support. And it very often conveys a sense of, of beauty and security. Well, he's saying this. You know, don't worry that you don't have a lot of power here because I'll give you power. I'm going to make you a pillar. Okay, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. In other words, you're going to be in the presence of God. Why? Because you held fast to his word. And I will write on him a, the name of my God. See? 
Jesus Christ is going to write? In other words, if you put your name on a shirt when you go to camp, I mean, what does that denote? This belongs to me. Well, it says right here, and I will write on him the name of my God. So, hey man, I belong to God. I got his name on me. You know, that says a lot. Wouldn't you like to have that on you? You know, uh, I belong to God. And you don't have to tell people that verbally. They just say, well, look, at he's sold out. And the name of the city of my God. In other words, he's going to be in the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, right? The new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. All right? We're going to read about this when we get in the last couple of chapters about this new Jerusalem, so I won't uh, spend a lot of time on it now, but that's going to be the eternal state, that you're going to be there, all right, with God's name on you, all right? And it's probably like, just like it, it, when we get into the 13th chapter of this book, we read about the mark of the beast is going to be put on people's forehead or their right hand, all right? This may not be something you see with the naked eye, but it shows that you are committed to this man, sold out to this Antichrist, sold out to the devil, man. That's what it points to. Well, I'm pretty sure this. In the city of the New Jerusalem, they're going to be written on our forehead the name of God. And it's not going to be something like you want to put makeup on. All right, You're going to wear this as a badge of honor. I mean, I know that you know anybody that's been in the military, I was in Vietnam and I, I was no hero, but I did come back with some medals. And you can tell, okay, they tell you what kind of campaigns you've been in, of what you've done, or you know what rewards you've got, and what what merits you've uh, accumulated. All right, in World War II, my father received uh, the Bronze Star. I mean, anybody who's been in the service can see through these ribbons that the campaigns you've been in, that you had the, the, the scars to prove that you were there when the battles were being fought. Right? right. So that's what he's saying here. That this is going to be something that's going to distinguish you. All right, and my new name. My new name. It either is going to be a name of Christ that we're going to be bearing, or we're going to be given a new name. Probably refers to both, because we read this earlier. And in verse 13, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, he repeats himself. Meaning this, you know what? Christ is speaking to the churches, isn't he? He's speaking in mass. He's speaking to the congregation. But he's saying, He who has an ear, let him hear. What does that suggest to us? He who's paying attention and yeah, in other words, let's just say you go to church and the whole church is filled with people on Sunday and then the pastor gives us some kind of sermon. All right, now the whole congregation, 95% of it could just go in one ear and out the other, right? Just over their head, just yawn, ho-hum, when is this going to be over? And then leave church and they figure, well, I did my good deed for the day. You know, this is be kind to God day and now I've done my duty, right? And another person is going to sit there and listen to everything that's being said and apply it to him. Now, this applies to me, right? So Jesus Christ, even though he's speaking to the churches, the invitation is to the individual to respond, right? Anybody have one add or share that? Yeah. Well, I notice he closes every single one of these with that same admonition. Yeah, Remember? right. And what's interesting, when we finish this chapter 3, there's not going to be one more mention of the church until we get into the last couple of chapters. And the interesting thing, the church is going to be conspicuous by its absence, all right? And what I mean by that is this. We are going to read that phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. But we are no longer going to hear that phrase that says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because the church is no longer going to be on earth. All right, It's going to be with Christ in heaven. I'll get into that next week. All right, But this, closing this down, I know we're out of time here, as usual. Verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, 
the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I swallow to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and, and will dine with him and he with me he who overcomes I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This church is Laodicea. Jesus Christ has absolutely nothing good to say about this church. Absolutely nothing. He finds this church absolutely nauseating. He wants to vomit them out of his mouth. I mean, this should be a dark warning to all of us. It really should. Because this really characterizes the church in this country today, I believe. I really strongly believe. This has happened to Europe. It characterized them for many years, and now Europe has become totally secular. All right? But look at this, verse 14 to the angel of the church in Laodicea. In other words, to the pastor. I certainly wouldn't want to have been this pastor, to tell you the truth, because he, he's pretty much responsible for this lukewarm condition of the people. He says, the amen. Now, what does amen mean? Yes. It, it is a solemn ratification. It means, so be it. Now, look at the way these people view themselves. They view themselves as being what? Uh, they view themselves as being uh, rich and becoming wealthy and have need of nothing. But Jesus Christ said that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean, what a contrast to the way they view themselves. And Jesus Christ says right up front, he says this, the amen. In other words, I'm the final word here. In other words, you know, I don't care what your girlfriend says about you or your boyfriend or your spouse or your children or your best friend or even your gushing, dewy-eyed, moonstruck mother says about you, man. I'm telling you right now, you are wretched and you are miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. I don't care what anybody says about you, man. I'm the amen. I'm the final authority. I'm the first and the last. What I say goes. There's no appeal after me, all right? I don't care what these other people think about you or what you think about yourself. See, that's why he's saying that, right? It is powerful, isn't it? The amen. He says that. He says the amen. The faithful. And a true witness. In other words, he's not lying to you. He's not jerking you around. He's not flim-flamming you. You could take it to the bank. When Jesus Christ says it, it is true. And it is faithful. We are told in Proverbs that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, this is pretty wounding, isn't it? I mean, it will wound your pride, my pride, right? If this is what he said to you, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, man. You're wretched. I mean, that's, that hurts. You know, but... He does it, why? Because faithful are the wounds of a friend. He's going to tell you right up front. If you had a friend, I mean, I know this is probably pretty earthly, but if, but if they had a big booger hanging out their nose, I mean, as a friend, you say, hey, man, uh, blow your nose, <laughs> right? I know that's kind of earthly, but I'm just simply saying, a friend will do that for you because he's looking out for you, right? Hey, you know, this is kind of embarrassing, and you would really appreciate it if a friend told you this, all right? You need to clean this up, right? Yeah. It's like I had a good friend, 
had bad breath. I felt so bad. And so I fought, because he didn't have a wife to tell him he had bad breath. <laughs> I felt so bad, you know. So finally I told him, I know kind of took offense because he felt so humiliated, I think. But at least I wanted him to know that information. Yeah, because that's the wound of a friend. Now, in retrospect, if he looks back on that, he probably would really appreciate it because now he's going to, you know, do whatever hygiene is necessary to get rid of the bad breath so that people aren't thinking about him. Yeah. And also about, uh, since I am rich, I have everything I want. I recall listening to this uh, preacher down out of Los Angeles, and it was the name and claimant, one of that group that came yeah. from him. Right. And he had a $4,000, his wife got a $4,000 dress, and she just couldn't believe that she should spend that much. He, if he had $2,000 leather boots, I would give him boots. And he says, well, get used to it because, you know, it's part of the faith walk. you got faith, you can have whatever you want. Yeah, see, you know, that to me is just, <laughs> just to me, it's just using God. These people are just using God. And anybody who belongs to the congregation and throws money at these uh, charlatans, you know, they need to have their head examined. But you're talking about this $4,000 dress. We all remember the emperor's clothes, that childhood story. To me, it's just classic, just classic about this emperor who was so vain. And every month he would go strutting up and down the street with a new wardrobe, a new clothes. But before he would do it, he would announce it to everybody and have everybody line the streets. And he would just parade up and down with the new clothes. And everybody would ooh and ah and clap and applaud. And he would just feel so enraptured with all of his attention and all his applause and all his praise and whatnot. And then... One day, this tailor comes to him, this lying, cheating, stealing, conniving, good-for-nothing tailor, and figure, hey, man, this is an easy buck because he can play upon this man's pride. Now, just imagine the tailor is saint, okay? Comes up to the guy and says, man, I can make you of the most beautiful, the most incredibly gorgeous clothes that anybody has ever worn. He says, but the only one thing about these clothes, only the intelligent, only the elite, only the very sophisticated and educated people can see these clothes. Anybody who does not see these clothes is stupid and they're ignorant and they have no class and they're just a low life. All right. So the word goes out to everybody in this kingdom and they all gather together when he's going to go strutting up and down with these new clothes. But he's strutting up and down in his birthday suit, buck naked. Nobody wants to say, hey, man, look at this guy. This guy's got nothing on. And everybody's going, wow, look at that. Beautiful clothes, beautiful, beautiful. Everybody's applauding. Everybody's going, he's just strutting up and down like he's a big fool. All right? Until a little kid says, hey, he ain't got no clothes on. And then people started snickering and snickering. And then all of a sudden, everybody just started laughing and laughing and jeering. And then the guy realized, man, I'm buck naked. And he had to run away, totally humiliated. Well, I'm telling you right now, this is the same thing with these people because they're saying, I'm rich. You know, I become wealthy. I need nothing. And you do not know that you are poor and blind and miserable and naked. Now, yeah, Christian. Oh, no. I'm just going to kind of... It says overcome. I'm kind of overcome by the following statement that that he makes. It's absolutely incredible. It just blows my mind. It says, uh, 21, is to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Yeah. I mean, that is just absolutely phenomenal. That Jesus. Yeah. You could share the throne with Jesus. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he said that in the Gospels. And to share his throne means what? Right. You're going to have his authority, right? And rule with his authority. The Church of Philadelphia, they're going to be ruling and reigning with him. They're going to be pillars in the house of God. They're going to be ruling and reigning. In other words, they're going to have real authority and power. These people think that they don't need anything. 
But Jesus said, you overcome and you'll get real power. You overcome, you'll be ruling with me. But here's the thing. He said this, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I swap to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now this is his advice to them. And you tell me what he's saying here. The only way that you can get the charter member of the Church of Laodicea out of their complacency is what? Right here, verse 18. I advise you to buy. What does it mean to buy? It's going to cost you something, man. It's going to cost you. You know what it's going to cost you? God is going to light a fire under your hiney. He's going to bring tribulation and trial into your life. It's going to be very costly. But he's going to do this because he loves you and he disciplines you and he wants to do to get out of this lukewarm state. Because he said, I would rather you be cold or hot. Now, if a person is freezing cold when it comes to God, they got more of a chance of getting to heaven than a lukewarm, apathetic, indifferent Christian. Why? Because they're comfortable. Right, because a person who's lukewarm belongs to the church, they are inoculated with just enough spiritual dope to make them feel comfortable in their miserable, wretched condition. But a person who's just a gross, flagrant sinner, who's just out there like the prodigal son in the pig pen, there's a more of a chance for this guy to finally come to a sense and say, man, what am I doing, man? i got to get out of here. Right? right? But there's a better chance of that person being saved than the person who's lukewarm. It really is. Right. He's saying this. Buy from me gold. Gold points to what? God. God, Divinity. So this is going to be a work in the Holy Spirit in your life. But believe me, it's going to be costly. Right? Gold refined by fire. Tribulation. Distress in your life. God's saying, this lukewarm person, I'm going to light a fire on him and get him boiling hot. Right? That's what it's going to take. And he says, that you may become rich. Now you're going to be rich towards heaven. All right? Jesus said, store up yourself riches that are in heaven, treasures that's in heaven where the moths can't get at it, the thieves can't get at it, the rust can't get at it. This is true riches, right? And white garments that you may clothe yourself. The white garments is what? Jesus Christ's righteousness. These people are strutting around in a birthday suit thinking, well, you know, I'm good. You know, hey, man, you're naked. You're naked. And he says this, that you may clothe yourself that you shame your nakedness and will not be revealed. That's powerful to me. Because where is the first mention of nakedness in the Bible? Now, here's the thing. We are told that when God created Adam and Eve, that they were both naked and not ashamed. But once they sinned against God, once they rebelled against God, they became aware of their nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together and they tried to hide their nakedness and they even tried to hide in the bushes from God. That was their first inclination, hide. Now, here's the thing. They're husband and wife, but now they've got fig leaves sewn on themselves. Even though they're totally familiar with one another's physical anatomy, they have something to hide from one another. They really do. That's what this nakedness really points to. It really does. It's profound to me, just profound. We all got clothes on here right now. And I don't care for a mixed group. I think everybody in this room would rather sit here stark naked in front of everybody than have all their hidden thoughts and their sins and everything they've done in their life exposed. I mean, I would. Maybe you guys don't. I don't know. But I would rather. You know what I'm saying? But here's the thing. 
when Adam and Eve sinned, they even were hiding from each other, not just from God anymore, because now they had something to hide from each other. And I think a person is really, really naive if they think, well, husband and wife, they must be totally, completely honest with one another at all times. And I'm thinking, boy, this person's really naive, really naive. Because we all know if a guy faithful to his wife is really trying to do his best in his marriage, but he works at a place where there's this secretary that comes in and starts working. She's just a bombshell. He just, oh, gosh, every day he just struggles with feelings of lust and desire for this woman. She's just such a knockout. All right, this is something he's going through, but he's being faithful to his wife. All right, but let's just say he goes home and he just says to his wife, look, you know what? Honey, I want to share this with you because I want to pray about this thing together with you. I'm having such a struggle at work. I'm having such a struggle with this lust because there's this beautiful woman that came in there, and I struggle day in and day out to keep my eyes off this woman. You've got to pray with me. Now, the guy's being honest. He's being truthful. He's being open. You know, he's sharing what's really going on in his life. But what woman is really going to take this well? Not too many. Not too many are going to say, oh, you know, I understand, man. Men really have a problem in this area. I understand perfectly. All right, sometimes women do too. Let's pray. Let's pray about this. And No, she's not going to do that. She's she's going to be calling him every 20 seconds. What's Lulu Bell doing? What's she wearing? Did you talk to her? Did you go on a break with her? Mm -hmm. Guys aren't going to have a moment's peace. Why? Because here's the situation. Our nakedness is something that now we even have to cover up from one another, not just from God, right? right. So he says, the shame of your nakedness might be exposed. If, you don't, if we're not wearing Christ's righteousness, then it's all going to come out, all right? I don't care how good we think we are. It's all going to come out, you know? That's what he says, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I swab to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, all right? In other words, Paul says clearly in Corinthians that we are looking through a dark glass when it comes to spiritual things. But I do believe this, and this is something I touch my eyes every day. I ask God to open my eyes, man, so I can see clearly spiritual things. So I can see for miles and miles down the road, see what's coming, prepare for what is coming, and warn others of what is coming, because you can see things spiritually clearly, what they really are. These people, they're blind. They're blind to their whole condition, right? Here's the thing. The sickest person in the world is a person who has a terminal illness and they don't know it. They don't know it. You know, if a person has a terminal illness and the doctors say, hey, man, uh, you got six months to live, uh, but here's some remedies, some surgery, some uh, therapy, some medication that can ward off this impending doom. Well, now you got a chance, right? But if you just say, well, there's nothing wrong with me, and you're dying of some terminal illness, well, you're finished, you're through, you're out, you're, 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 it's over for you, right? Well, you have your eyes open, and you say, man, I didn't realize how lost I was. I didn't realize you know, how far away from God I was. I didn't realize how arrogant I was, how self-righteous I was. I didn't realize I was putting all my faith in my own good works in this humanism rather than Jesus Christ's righteousness. See, you have your eyes open, right? And then 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And what are we told in Hebrews chapter 12? We are told that, man, that God disciplines those who he loves. And uh, discipline isn't an easy thing. But any father who loves his children will discipline them, right? This is what we need in our life. And that's why he says that I love you and I'm going to discipline you, right? But now you've got to respond to this discipline because if you don't respond to this discipline, then there's no hope for you. You're going to hell, all right? Because he says, therefore, be zealous and repent. In other words, he's given a warning ahead of time that they really need to take this to heart. Be zealous about it. Repent of their sins. Most people today, you stick a microphone in their face and say, hey, man, you think you need to repent to get to heaven? 
Oh, repent of what? I didn't do anything wrong. Man, wake up. Have your eyes open. And it says in verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will dine with him and he with me. Now, this is very, very powerful. Very powerful because he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Suggesting what? He's seeking us out. He's taking the initiative, but he's not going to put anyone in a headlock and say, You will serve me. You will obey me. You will repent. You will do this and you will do that. He's knocking at the door of our heart. But what's interesting to me, it says this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. In other words, in my house, by all the laws of men and nations in our country and whatnot, a stranger just doesn't have the right to just open the door of my house and come to my house and make himself at home. It's my house. I own the house, man. But if somebody knocks at the door and opens the door and I greet the person, says, well, come on in and have dinner with me. I have that prerogative. Why? Because this is my house. I'm the host, all right? And I can invite somebody in or I can refuse to invite somebody in. But interesting thing, Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, if you open the door, hear my voice, open the door, I will dine with you and then you with me. What's the powerful suggestion here? Let me in and reap the reward. Well, first of all, he says this, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. Here's the thing. Christ has taken the initiative in knocking. We take the initiative and we open the door. We invite him in. Then we have fellowship together because I'm the host of the house. He dines with me. But then everything's changed where he becomes the host. He becomes the Lord of the house. He becomes the owner of the house because now we dine with him. You get it? You see what's saying? It's powerful. I will come to him and we'll dine with him and he with me. All right? Because you let him in, that was your sovereign right before God, and he will not transgress upon our freedom of choice. Our freedom of choice is sovereign, all right? He takes the initiative, knocks, we open the door, he has fellowship with us, and now we're going to have fellowship with him, and since we're going to dine with him, now he becomes the host, now he becomes the Lord of the house, now he becomes the owner, right? He's in charge, right? Right. Oh, yeah. And verse 21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him sit down with me on my throne, and as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, overcome. Again, the implication is, you know what? This is going to be a struggle. This is going to revolve some blood, sweat, and tears if you're going to overcome this situation. Right? But then, if you do overcome, you're going to rule and reign with Christ because he says, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Right? Meaning that you're going to be a co-regency in terms of ruling and reigning with Christ. All right? That's powerful. It really is. And it says, As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Last verse, 22, of this chapter 3 of Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right? And like I said, it's like Christ has given the message to the whole church in Mass. But it's the individual that must respond. He who has an ear. Not everybody in the church is going to respond to this message. But the invitation goes out there. He who has an ear. Not everybody who has ears. But he who has an ear. The individual must respond to this message. All right? And we've got to evaluate these churches. I said earlier that if five out of the seven churches were in need of repentance back then. There's a good chance that five out of seven church members today are in need of repentance. All right, and we have to take inventory. Uh, anybody have anyone to add or share? Uh, you know what? I didn't mean to spend so much time on each chapter here, and hopefully I'll be able to pick up the pace here. But it's like you could write a book on each church. You could. Uh, it's I don't just know what you're doing. Keep huh? <laughs> okay. All right, but I, I try to keep in mind that people, if they log on the internet, they they don't want to send an hour and a half. This <laughs> is something like this.